As Brother Nathan said, we're glad to see each and every one of you today. This is the best day of the week. It's a wonderful day that God has given to us to come and comfort and strengthen one another. Uh, we've been announcing for some time that we're starting a, a, a teaching series. And this month's theme, as Nathan said, is going to relate to things that are contained in the Great Commission. Lord willing, next Sunday, Brother John will talk to us about saving faith. And then the next Sunday, Brother Monty will talk to us about the doctrine of baptism. And then, Lord willing, on the fourth Sunday, Brother Nathan will be talking to us about salvation, the Old and the New Testament. Uh, now, given that, some of those things we're going to talk about this morning to build a foundation to set a tone for the rest of that teaching. And everything hinges on the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is so important because it is the pivotal moment from transferring from Moses' law into the law of Christ, if you want to call it the law of Christ. This is the time when they would go out into the world and they would begin to tell the world about Jesus Christ. So before we really dive into this, what we're going to see is this is recorded for us in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. And we're going to look at all three of those just briefly here in a few moments. But I want to start out by saying, where did we get this terminology? What does that mean, the Great Commission? What is a commission for one? And I don't want to assume everybody understands what a commission is. We use that word in different ways. Uh, but relating to this idea of a commission, the word commission means an instruction, a command, or duty given to a person or group of people. So just very plainly put, what this is, is it is a command or a charge, if you will. Jesus is charging his disciples with responsibility. He's identifying to them, this is the work that you're going to do now that I'm leaving. And we've talked through about that throughout the, our studies in the Gospel of John, that Jesus told them, greater work will you do than what I've done. And this is that work that he was describing, that they would go into all the world, that the scope of their work would be much larger, that Jesus' work that he did on the cross of Calvary was leading up to the work that they would do in taking that to the world. So that's the idea of a commission. It's an instruction, a command, or a charge, if you will, that is given. And we notice in Matthew 18, as Brother Isaac read for us this morning, that it was the 11 disciples that were there that Jesus spoke to when he said to them, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Now, you might think 11 disciples, that's all. But remember, Judas, by transgression, fell. So now there's 11. Later, Matthias would be added to that number and complete that number of 12 again. He would take Judas's office... And then also we see Paul later being added as an apostle. But the 11 that were there that day that Jesus spoke to, those were the ones that he commissioned with this. Now, there's a very important thing that Brother Isaac read for us this morning, and that's where Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. The commission was given based on Jesus' authority. He had the authority to give this commission. And when he gave that commission, we call this the Great Commission. Well, why do we call it the Great Commission? And where do we get that idea? Well, there was limited commissions that we see throughout the Gospels, such as in Matthew 10, 5, and 6, where Jesus commanded the 12 to go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter, uh, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When we say limited and great, what we're saying is limited in scope because they were not allowed to go to the Gentile world. And if you're not familiar with those terms, Gentile just means not a Jew. That's all it means. Anybody that wasn't a Jew was a Gentile. They weren't necessarily a race of people, if you will, or a nation of people. It was just anyone who wasn't 
of the house of Israel. And we also see this recorded for us in the book of Luke in chapter 9 and also in chapter 10 where Jesus even sent the 70 out. You might go look at that sometime in Luke chapter 10 where he sent the 70 out. But that was a limited commission. This one's different because in all three of these uh, accounts that we read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, notice the common theme. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This wasn't just to the house of Israel. Mark chapter 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So that sort of expands that idea of all nations. To all the world, to every creature. And then finally in Luke 24, 47, <coughs> Jesus said that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in his name to all nations. So that's the reason we call it the Great Commission because it is a worldwide, it's worldwide, it's universal in scope, if you will. So let's read all three accounts of the Great Commission. Let's talk about why there's some differences and then let's look at them together and sort of summarize those because I think that'll be helpful as we're moving on this morning. Matthew 28, verse 18, as Brother Isaac read for us earlier, it says, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now here's the commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And we're going to read these quick and then we're going to talk about them. Mark chapter 16, verses 15, very similarly, it says, He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now let's look at Luke. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 49. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary, or as the King James says, it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. These disciples were witnesses of these things. And he said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So I know we went through those rather quickly, but we're going to settle down on them for a moment because I want you to see that there are differences in these three accounts. Now, there's several reasons for that. Some look at this and they say, well, that's a contradiction. So we need to understand what a contradiction is and what a contradiction is not. Because a contradiction doesn't mean there's different accounts given. A contradiction is when two or three more, uh, two or more statements are made that cannot be true at the same time. And that's not what we have here. This isn't two or three statements that are given that they, they don't line up. They can't possibly be true. What we have here is what we call correlation. We have three different accounts, but they don't teach different things. They just give certain details and they leave out certain details in other accounts. So if you were to, to ask three different witnesses, and Franklin probably knows about this more than any of us, but if you ask three different witnesses what they saw and they may all be at the same place at the same time, their accounts wouldn't always be completely true, or, or completely the same, that is. Not necessarily not true, but they wouldn't all be exactly detail, for detail, the exact same story. In fact, when you have that, then you're skeptical, because they all told the exact same story with the exact same de details, and you think, well, they've corroborated. They've, they've, all, they've conspired to do this thing. Well, their details are different, but why is that? Perspective. And there's other factors, other nuances to this that we won't take time to get into, but I want you to see the symmetry between not only these three accounts, but also what happened in application when the apostles actually went out and they applied this charge, this commission, this command, because what we're going to see is that this is the exact same way that the apostles went out and they did their work. 
So in Matthew we had, go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Well, Mark uses the word preach instead of teach, preach, and then he identifies what to preach, the gospel, and we'll talk about that in a moment, to every creature, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Well, you have details in Mark that you don't have in Matthew, such as what to preach. He he, uh, also adds the idea of believing and of salvation in here. Luke chapter 24, Jesus said, as it is, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise again the third day. Well, what is that? Well, we'll talk about that more in detail, but that's the gospel. And he said, and that repentance and remission of sins would be preached to all nations in his name, beginning at Jerusalem. So what we're going to do is we're going to take these and we're going to summarize them. Just make one paragraph out of these three accounts so that we can get a full picture of the Great Commission, and here's what it is. Go therefore and preach the gospel, repentance, and remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ to every creature in all nations. He who believes and is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Make them disciples by teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. I think this is a very fair summarization of what we read in all three of these. So we get the whole picture And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to ask the question, not what is the Great Commission, because we've already defined that, but what was its purpose? What was the purpose of the commission? And what is the gospel? Because that's very important. But I'll tell you, there's a couple of other big factors in this that are very important that we spend some time defining, and that is what is salvation and what is condemnation? Because those are two things that Jesus spoke about, salvation and condemnation. So let's start out by asking what is the gospel? And we use this term all the time, the word gospel, and we use it in a very secular way too. We might say of someone who's a know-it-all, we may say everything that he says he thinks is gospel. Well, what we mean by that is he thinks that everything he says is infallibly true. Well, That's really not what the word gospel means. Now, the gospel is infallibly true, but that's not what the term itself means. There's a very specific meaning of the word gospel that is used in the New Testament. Now, if you just do a word study on it, the word gospel is just good news. Does that mean anything that's good news is the gospel? No. This is a very specific good news about Jesus Christ. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul identifies the gospel, and he's going to give us lots of details, and we're going to really pull some things out of these passages. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you what? The gospel, which I preached to you, which also you have received, and in which you stand, notice verse 2, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast, the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Now listen to verse 3. What is the gospel? Here it is. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, notice, according to the scriptures. In other words, it was prophesied that Jesus would die for our sins. Then verse 4, and that he was buried and that he rose again, again, he mentions it again, it's somewhat redundant, the third day according to the scriptures. What's he saying? This is the gospel. The gospel is simply put the death burial and resurrection of Jesus, but not just the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus' death for sins that he died for our sins and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. That's the gospel. Now, is the gospel bigger than that? Yes, it's bigger than that. But this is what we would call the core of the gospel, the message of the gospel that they were to be preaching is that Jesus came to die for their sins. Now, is there a lot of different details of that message? Yes. 
But this is the foundation, if you will, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Now I want to go back to this reading and highlight some different things. We notice what the gospel is. What I want you to notice is how the gospel is, is, is brought about. What is it that the gospel hopes to accomplish? So look at verses 1 and 2 again. <clears throat> he says the gospel was what was preached, that they received or believed, and that saved them. That's Mark 16, 15 through 16. Go into all the world and what? Preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Again, symmetry. We're seeing the exact same things taught all throughout the New Testament. The gospel is a message of salvation. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of what? The gospel of Christ. That is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, his death for sins. For it is the power of God to what? To salvation for everyone who what? Believes. So again, what is the gospel? It is a message that is preached. And when it's preached and people believe it, they receive it, it will save them. But here's the reality. If it's not preached, people don't believe. If it's not believed, people aren't saved. That is the purpose of the Great Commission. Because it wasn't enough for Jesus just to die on the cross. That message had to be spread because God's plan was that people would, by faith, be saved through the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what the commission is all about. So, what is salvation? I know a lot of times we talk about these things in a, in a general way, in a, a generic way, if you will. I don't want to do that this morning. I want us to all leave with a really good idea of what is salvation. Because if the gospel is about being saved, well, you can be saved from a lot of different things. And, and, and believe it or not, there's a lot of controversy surrounding what is the salvation that is connected to the gospel. Some people believe it's just salvation in this life. And, and, you know, that kind of contradicts what Paul said when he said, if, we're, if in this life we only have hope, we're of all men most miserable. So, so we know that that's really not what the gospel is about, is just this life. But what does salvation mean? We use the term saved a lot. We have conversations and maybe discussions and debates about salvation. So what does the Bible mean by the word saved? That's one thing we want to look at. Number two, we want to look at what do we say from? Because if you're saved, you're saved from something. And so we must identify what we're saved from as well. And then thirdly, what is this condemnation that Jesus mentioned? Because that's a big part of the Great Commission. He says there, he that believes and is baptized will be saved, but he that believes not will be what? Will be damned or condemned, as the New King James Version put it. So we're going to talk about that as well. And that's what we're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning looking at. So what does saved mean? Well, let's just identify the definition of the word that's translated saved in Mark 16, 16. It means to save or to keep safe and sound or to rescue from danger or destruction. Now, I will tell you, I prefer this term because it's not, because it's not very uh, ambiguous. It's very clear in its meaning. It's the term rescue. And when we read the word save, that's really what it means is rescue. And you say, well, what does it matter? Uh, why, do, why does it matter if we use the word save to the word rescue? Because I think sometimes we confuse the word saved with being something that it's not. And so let's look at Romans 5 for a moment, and this will help us understand what I mean. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So this word helpless is sometimes translated powerless or without strength. Helpless. Let's think about this. I'm pressing this issue for a reason. And it's because a lot of people believe they were already pretty close to God, and then the gospel made them closer. As if God is actually 
through the gospel of Jesus taking us from a good state to a better state. And that's not what it means. Rescue implies something. Helplessness. Powerlessness. Rescue implies I can't do it. And probably the easiest way to illustrate a rescue is, is you think about someone that's in a medical emergency. Maybe somebody that falls down with cardiac arrest. And what, what is the first thing that people shout when they see somebody fall down in cardiac arrest? Somebody help them. Why? Because they can't help themselves. You see somebody choking on something, and what do they do? Well, they just sit there and they choke, right? They can't talk. They can't speak. They, they may hit themselves, and that's often not very helpful. They need somebody to help them. They're helpless. They're powerless to help themselves. That's what we're talking about when we talk about salvation. We're not talking about, well, I'm really close to God, and God's going to make me closer. What we're saying is, no, you're not close to God. You're in a state of loss, in a state of condemnation, and you need Jesus to save you, to rescue you. You know what this word's used? Same word. I'm putting up here like that word's still on the screen. This word. You know what that word's used? When Peter walks out on the water and he starts to sink because he sees the winds are boisterous. And what did he shout? Lord, save me. What did he mean? Was he saying, I can't swim? No, he's a fisherman. I'm sure he could swim. He looked around and saw the waves crashing and he needed help because he was powerless to save himself. That's salvation. We are powerless to save ourselves. That's why all throughout Paul's letters he says, you're not saved by works. Well, listen, if you understand that saved means rescued, that makes perfect sense. If you're powerless, it doesn't matter what work you do, you can't rescue yourself. If you said, I rescued myself, someone would look at you like you're crazy. Because you don't know what that means, rescue. You can't rescue yourself. We need rescuing. That's what the gospel is about. That's what salvation means. So what are we saved from? Now, there's a lot of nuances to this, and we don't have time for all that. We're going to put this in two categories today. Number one, we're safe from sin. Matthew chapter 121. This is what Jesus' uh, physical father, not his biological father, but his father Joseph that, was, that played the role of his father here on the earth was told about Mary and about Jesus. And that she would bring forth a son, and he said, you will call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Well, that's very telling, isn't it? What is the work of salvation about? What is Jesus rescuing us from? From sins. And that was told to Joseph before Jesus was ever born. So that's what we're saved from. We're saved from sins. Notice also Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So here's another aspect of what we're safe from. Safe from wrath. Whose wrath? Our wrath? Am I safe from your wrath? No, we're safe from God's wrath. You know, God saves us from himself. He saves us from ourselves. He saves us from his wrath. Why? Because God is just. He must condemn sin. And the only way that God can not place his wrath upon us is to do what? To make us not have sin. And so we're justified by his blood. What's the word justify mean? It means to make something wrong right. It means to clear us from guilt, to render us as innocent. And so it's because of our salvation from sin that we are saved from God's wrath. And this is the condemnation that Jesus was speaking to. It is related to the idea of wrath. What did Jesus say? John 3 and verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. 
But he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Friends, I don't know how to put this any plainer than what Jesus says here. And this is the harsh reality that the world doesn't want to believe. If you don't believe in Jesus, you will not go to heaven. If you don't believe in Jesus, you will not see life. That's not Ian's judgment. I'm not judging you. Jesus is. This is the words of Jesus. If you don't believe in the Son, you will not see life, but the wrath of God will abide on him. And you may think, well, that's not fair. There's good people out there who, who may not believe in Jesus. It's not about being good. Yes, I'm sure there's a lot of good people in the world. It's not about being good. It's about being justified by Jesus' blood so that we're innocent when we stand in the sight of God. And that's only accomplished through the gospel of Jesus. It's not accomplished in any other way. John 8, 21, Jesus said this, Then Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will seek me and die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Here's the hard truth. God's wrath is attached to our sin, and if we die in our sin, we will not see life. We will not see life. 1 Thessalonians 1 and 10, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Now listen, even Jesus, who delivers or rescues us from the wrath to come. See, we've gotten really good at preaching the good news, but we've swung the pendulum so far, you know what we've left out? One of the most fundamental principles of the Great Commission, and that is that Jesus said, he who does not believe will be condemned. What do you mean by that, condemned? What is con condemnation? It's when a guilty sentence is placed on someone and they're punished for it. That's condemnation. What did Jesus say about condemnation? Matthew 25, 41, this is a parable that Jesus gave about the kingdom where he talked about two different groups and he talked about the sheep being on the right hand and the goats being on the left. Don't y'all wish y'all to sit over here now. The goats being on the left, the sheep on the right. What did he say to the sheep? Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And what did he say to those on the left? To those on the left, he said this, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's hard to hear, isn't it? Depart from me. What does depart from me mean? That's, that's sort of a soft way of saying something, depart from me. You know what that means? Get away from me. Get out of my sight. Go away. You cursed. That's strong language. You cursed in everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. What is condemnation? It's when you spend eternity with the devil and his angels in a place that's cursed. Because you've been cursed, you've been judged, because the wrath of God abides on you. Why? Because you don't have Jesus. Is it because you're the most wicked person in the world? No. It's because you don't have Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's about being saved by Jesus. It's about being justified by Jesus, about being redeemed by Jesus. What's the song that we just sang? In Christ alone, my hope is found. And we can't ignore the condemnation because, listen, without condemnation, salvation doesn't mean as much. But this is what we're saved from, is being condemned by God. Luke 12, 5, But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Who is this? This is Jesus. What does he say? Fear God. Why? Because God's not like a man. A man can kill you. They can stop your life physically. But God can stop your life physically and then cast you into hell. And yes, hell is a real place. It's a real place. And I've heard all kinds of explanations from people who say they believe in Jesus that say, well, hell is not a real place. That's just something Jesus was using to illustrate how bad it would be not to be with God. And I would say I will believe the Son of God over whatever philosophy man comes up with to try to erase 
what Jesus taught. That there is a hell. It's a real place. And it's a place for the cursed, the condemned. Luke chapter 16. And before we read this, someone's going to think, well, well, Ian, this is not talking about hell or eternal damnation. This is talking about the place of the dead or what happens. So I don't want to get into all that. It would take a lot of time to really deconstruct that idea and really look at it. But I do want to say this. Let's not miss the point of Jesus' teaching, which is this was what will happen to the wicked. This is what happens to the wicked after they die. So notice Luke 16, 23, and being in torments, this is the rich man, being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. I want to say, first of all, this man wasn't in this place of torment because he was rich. That wasn't why he was there. He was there because he rejected Jesus. These were the people that were rejecting Jesus. He was speaking to the Pharisees about their fate and what would happen to them. And even told them at one time, how are you going to escape the damnation of hell? That's the same people he's talking to that we just read in John 8 when he said, you will die in your sins. They rejected Jesus. What does he, what does he paint a picture of here? He said, and he lifted up his eyes being in torments. What do you think when you read the word torment? Pain, hopelessness, sorrow. What's he say? Have mercy on me. Sin Lazarus. That he made what? Dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Can you imagine being in so much pain that you just want the edge taken off? And the edge taken off would be enough if somebody would just carry the amount of water that could fit on the tip of their finger to touch your tongue and cool your tongue. Because he said, I'm tormented in this flame. I'm tormented. This is a place of torment that Jesus is describing. He's describing a place of condemnation, a place of judgment. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you are tormented. And we could get into a lot of things about why this man was where he was, but just suffice to say this, he said to him, remember. If you'll think about your life, speaking of the rich man, you'll know why you're where you're at. Just remember. And then he tells him this, besides all this, between us and you, there's a great goal fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, neither or nor can those from there pass to us. What's he saying? Your fate is sealed. Your destiny's fixed. And there's no change in it. You made your choices while you're in life. And that choice is over. It's been taken away from you. You can't choose that anymore. And I can't fix that. I can't bring you over here to comfort. You're where you're at because of the life choices that you made. You are condemned, sir. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, Paul said this, For we must all appear <coughs> excuse me, for, before the judgment seat of Christ. Now listen very closely, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Why was it that Paul went out and preached the gospel? Was it just because God told him to? I mean, I, I'm sure that was a big motivating factor, that he was commissioned by God to do that. But what did he say? Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What motivated them to carry out the Great Commission? I'll tell you what motivated them. They knew without Jesus Christ that every person would experience God's wrath. That's what motivated them. They didn't look out in the world and go, you know, I probably don't want to disturb that person. They, they seem like they're pretty happy. I, I, you know, I, I don't really want to mess with their happiness. They went out and they put them, their own lives in jeopardy to tell people, Jesus Christ came to die for your sins and without him, the wrath of God abides on you. 
That was the message that they took. They were convinced, they were convicted that God will judge those that do not have Jesus Christ. And that word persuade there means to convince or to convict by argument. I don't mean they were having a fight with people. That word argue doesn't always mean a a back and forth yelling match or a a heated debate. It means to use reason. We're convincing people with reason. And what was that reason? The gospel of Jesus Christ. What was the purpose of the Great Commission? To preach the gospel to the lost so they might believe and be rescued through Jesus Christ from an eternity in hell. That's the Great Commission. It's not something that's only good, only flowery. There's a dark side to all this. And that is without Jesus, you will be lost. And it's what motivated them to go out and take this to every creature in every nation all around the world. So let's look at the first time that this was ever carried out. Peter preaches the very first gospel sermon. And what did he preach? He said, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God, that is approved by God or shown to be in in God's eyes as approved. He he was attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. What is this first part about? He's saying, you remember Jesus of Nazareth? And they did. They knew him. They heard about him. Some of them saw him. They saw miracles that he performed. And he's saying those miracles were evidence that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. He is the divine son of God. And then he says this, him being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. You know what the second thing he told him about was? Their guilt. Their guilt. They killed the son of God. But notice he also says this was all God's plan. This was according to God's planning. It wasn't like this was plan B. You know, some of the world have said that. Well, Jesus wanted to come and he wanted to institute the kingdom, but it's been postponed because they killed him. No, that's not what happened. Jesus came and did what he was called to do, which is die. Because that was according to God's plan for the very foundation of the world. And he says, you took him by lawless hands, crucified him and put him to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. What is he preaching? The death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. He's preaching the gospel beginning at Jerusalem, just like we read in Luke chapter 24 and Mark 16 and Matthew 28. And we're not going to take time to read the entire sermon. I want to get toward the end of the sermon and I want to see how the application of this preaching of the gospel turned out. He presents to them many evidences from the prophets that what he is saying is indeed the truth. He talks to them about David and how David preached before the resurrection of Jesus through the Psalms. And he comes to the point where he says, Therefore, because of all the evidence that I've just laid out about Jesus, because of all the reasoning, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus. What Jesus? The one that you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What's that mean? He is prince on high. He is king. But he's not only Lord, he's also the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the anointed of God. And it says when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Did they believe what Peter said? Absolutely. You don't get cut to the heart by something you don't believe. Somebody says something you don't believe, you just go, whatever. (laughs) And you walk away and you have no, they are cut to the heart. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? What are they asking? What shall we do? What shall we do? To do what? To escape the wrath of a righteous judging God. What shall we do? They're convicted. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift 
of the Holy Spirit. Now let's go back to our summary earlier. This was our summary of the Great Commission. What do we see in Acts chapter 2? We see every single detail of the summary of the three commissions lined up in one sermon, in one day, they're in Pentecost, and then you're going to see that throughout the book of Acts. <clears throat> so I hope, you'll, I hope you'll be here with us on Wednesday nights as we're going through the book of Acts and we're looking at how they carried out the Great Commission. That is what the book of Acts is. It's them taking the commission out to the world. Peter preached the gospel of Jesus. He preached the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They believed it. They were pricked in their heart. And he said to them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for what? The remission of sins, which again is what salvation is. We're saved from sin. So this is usually where the controversy in the Great Commission comes from. When are we saved from sin? And I will tell you, the majority of the world believes that we're saved when we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He died for us. And I want you to know that the Bible doesn't teach that. It doesn't teach that. It, do, it never teaches for us to pray to Jesus. Not once. And I've made this bet several times, or, or this offer, and I'll make it again. I will give you one billion, billion with a B, dollars, if you can show me in Scripture where the Bible teaches the sinner's prayer. It'll be a hot check. It'll be smoking hot because I don't have a billion dollars. But I'm not worried. I'll never have to write that check because it's not in the Bible. It's nowhere. What we do see is Jesus, who had all authority and power in heaven and in earth, commissioned his disciples to preach this message. And it's the message they continue to preach. And what was that message? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. What is the remission of sins? What's the word remission mean? It means to release from bondage or imprisonment, forgiveness or pardon of sins, which is most likely the usage of the word remission here, remission of sins, to have forgiveness or pardon of sins. Letting them go as if they'd never been committed remission of the penalty. So it results in a lot of different things, but simply put, remission means to remove sin. Now, there's been people that have said, well, well, Peter wasn't telling them they had to be baptized so they'd have remission. He was telling them to be baptized because they had remission. Well, that doesn't make any sense. He just told them, you're guilty of killing God's son. And they said, what shall we do? What shall we do? And what did he say? Repent and be baptized. Why? For the removal of the sins. I just told you you had. They weren't asked, asked to be baptized because they were saved. It was related to their salvation. I'm not going to assert that. We're going to take a little bit of time to look at that. Acts chapter 22, 16. Now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away what? Your sins. Wash away your sins. Remember, we're saved from what? We're saved from sin. Paul was told, wash away your sins. By how? Be, be, being baptized. 1 Peter chapter 3, 21, this from the New American Standard says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, and the this is Noah and his family being saved by water. He says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice that he says, Baptism, water baptism, obviously, saves you. And what is baptism? It's not an outer washing, but it's an appeal to God for what? An inner washing. A cleansing of the inner man. A removal of what? Guilt and shame due to sin. Baptism saves us. That's what he said. 
Romans 6, verse 3, and again, we're going to go through this quickly because Brother Monty is going to give us a lot more thorough treatment of this, Lord willing, in a couple weeks. Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we're buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. I want you to see here that Paul identifies baptism as being a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says we're baptized into Jesus Christ. We're baptized into his death. We're buried with him by baptism or through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised up from the dead, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When, when are we born again? When we're lifted up. In what? In life. Just as Jesus was reborn, if you will, at the resurrection and he had new life. We have new life when we're buried with Jesus into his death and then raised with him, united with him in baptism. This is where new life happens. Because again, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and baptism is a very picture of that. And that's why it's called obeying the gospel. Because we're literally obeying a form of of what I said literally inform that really does there's your contradiction literally inform we're not literally obeying the death burial and resurrection of Jesus but obeying it in a form in a figure if you will being buried with him who taught this Jesus did who else taught this Paul did well who was Paul he was someone authorized by Jesus commissioned by Jesus to teach these very things did you notice down there in this reading where we're talking about baptism the idea of death what dies he said our old man is crucified with him. What dies in baptism? Notice verse 6, or let's actually look at verse 5 first. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, obviously he's still talking about baptism, certainly we shall also, I'm looking right at the screen, I'm still quoting King James, I'm sorry. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Now here's what that means. That the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. What is baptism about? What's it for? Sin. What do we say from? Sin. What is baptism about? It washes away sin. It remits sin. The body of sin is done away. We're freed from sin. How can we say if salvation is from sin and baptism is when God says sin is removed that it has nothing to do with salvation when it actually removes the very thing that we're saved from? It's all about sin. Don't buy into the world. Read your Bible. Trust the scriptures. Question everything that I say this morning according to the word of God. Go look at it for yourself. And I'll tell you what you're going to find. They preach the great commission because that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And when we say, well, you don't have to be baptized to be saved, I'll tell you what we're saying. We're saying what Jesus should have said is he who believes and is not baptized will be saved. And I want to give you a very hard caution here. The first time we ever see someone inserting the word not into the word of God is in Genesis chapter 3. When God said, you will surely die, and Satan said, you will not surely die. And it's often called the knot in the devil's tail. This is the knot in the devil's tail in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not say, he who believes and is not baptized. He said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And he who does not believe will be condemned. You say, well, Ian, he didn't say he who does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned. And there's a reason why he didn't say that and why he didn't have to say that. 
Why didn't Jesus say that? Why didn't he just say, well, he who does not believe and he who is not baptized will be condemned? Well, I want you to notice back in Acts 2, once again, as Peter preached this message, it says those who gladly received his word were baptized. What's that mean? When they believed the gospel, what did they do? They were baptized. So what is evidence when someone isn't baptized? They don't believe. What do we see when people believe the gospel? They're baptized. That's what happened in Acts 2. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, we see the same thing. For they've not all obeyed the gospel. What is obeyed, obeyed the gospel? We just saw that. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed? You see the connection between belief and obedience, between belief and baptism? That's why Jesus didn't say, he who is not baptized will be condemned. He didn't have to. Because when we believe what man says over what Jesus says, we don't believe he's the son of God. We really don't. We don't believe he's truth. We're rejecting his word. Jesus had all authority, all authority in heaven and earth. And friends, salvation is through him and in him. It's not in anyone else. And I'm going to leave you with one last passage today from Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many, there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and constricted is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. I wanted to read this as we end our lesson today because I want you to know there's only two gates. There's only two paths and there's only two destinations. There's no neutral ground. And I want you to know every single person that's in here today is on one of those two paths. You're, you're not here, okay? You're not here and you're not here. You're either here on this way or on this way. There's no neutral ground. See, that's what Jesus presented. There's salvation and there's condemnation. And in Jesus, there's salvation. And without Jesus, there's not. So where are you at today? Because I'll tell you, we, we can reason it away in our own minds and think that God will not judge us. But I'll tell you, the, the Great Commission was about one thing. It was about telling the world how to be saved. Telling the world that God has provided a means of being saved. So are you saved? Are you saved today? Have you been rescued through the blood of Jesus Christ? And if you've not, God is calling you to do that through the gospel of Jesus. If you do believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then repent of your sins and give your life to Him and be united with Him in His death, His burial, and resurrection. And I'll tell you what will happen. He will look at the sins of your life and disregard them. He will impute to you, He will count Jesus' righteousness on you. You won't have your own righteousness. You'll have Jesus' righteousness. And I'll tell you what that is. It's perfect. It's a perfect righteousness. And once you have that, you're on this road. You're on your way to life. Friends, if you obeyed the commission, you see the power of the commission? It's still working today. Their work, 12 men went out into the world, and it's still working today. Is it working in you? If you need to obey the gospel of Jesus today and put him on in baptism, come have a seat on the front as we stand and we sing the song that's been selected, Bring Your Sins to Him.